0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I am Cale Guthrie-Weissman, the editor-in-chief here at Modern Retail. This week, we're going into the world of socks and also more. We'll talk about them more soon, but we're talking with Bombas. We have co-founders Randy Goldberg and Dave Heath. I am nearly positive that probably every listener of the show knows what Bombus is. It's a really impressive DTC company. It's also one of, I was reading an entrepreneur article earlier today, and it's considered one of the most successful Shark Tank companies, so congrats to you guys on that. But you've become sort of like a guiding light in terms of being in the apparel direct-to-consumer space. You've made some really interesting intentional choices over the last few years. I know that you guys don't have any retail stores, and you've expanded, but expanded very intentionally into new areas. And you also have a mission-driven approach to your business, the buy one, give one. I want to get into all of that, more what you guys are focusing on for the year to come. We're at the end of the year now, and so I'm sure you guys are very busy thinking about all of those things. But Randy and Dave, yeah. how are you guys doing?
1: Thanks for the intro. It's Sounds great. Cal. Thanks for having us. We're, we're doing good.
0: Is it is it as good as I made it sound? <laughs>
2: Yeah. One, one point of clarification, we're actually the number one most successful company on Shark Tank, but who's counting?
0: All right. Yeah. Who's counting? I, I apologize for the error there. But let's start with you two. So, you know, the company's been around for a little bit. Why don't you just, I'll start with you, Dave. Like, what were you doing before you got into socks? How did you end up working with Randy? What, what's the story that, that led up to it?
2: Yeah. Um, it's a great story. Um You know, I went to school for entrepreneurship, so I always kind of knew that I wanted to start my own company. Um, Upon graduating, I worked at a number of kind of small startups, uh, and one of them led me to meeting Randy. We were working at a small media company here in New York. Um, Randy was the sixth employee. I was the seventh. Uh, I was there for about five years. Randy, I think, was a little bit over six. Um, But the backs of our chair—it was such a small office that the backs of our chairs actually touched— and, uh, I'm sure Randy has some comments about, you know, oh, no. his first Not impressions really. of me. I was a salesperson, so I was like always on the phone I was very loud. Uh, Randy was a copy editor, as you know, was, oh, like, wow. go <laughs> heads down and he's like sitting there and I like lean back on my chair and I'm bumping him and, um, you know, but all great relationships. Yeah,
1: it was a meet cute. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, um. You know, we we obviously tight quarters, uh, we got to know each other, became close friends, um, and quickly discovered that we both had a, I think, shared passion or or vision to want to start our own company. Um, And so we started throwing ideas around, uh, you know, over our kind of, you know, tenure at this uh, media company. And, you know, it was early 2010, and I came across a quote on Facebook that said, socks are the number one most requested clothing items at homeless shelters. And I remember sharing this fact with Randy, and we both kind of agreed that, you know, this is pretty sad that, you know, here's an item of clothing that the majority of us don't spend, you know, more than a few seconds a day thinking about unless they get a hole or they're wet or whatever. Um, But yet it's being seen as kind of, you know, a luxury item for 600,000 people living here in the United States. Um, And so I think both of us kind of looked at each other and were like, maybe we can do something about this and kind of putting our entrepreneurial hat on. We obviously had seen what Tom's Shoes had done at the time. You know, they were in their fifth year of business growing like crazy really kind of pioneered this buy one, give one model. Uh, Warby Parker had just launched and, you know, they adopted that same model to eyewear. And I think we both said, like, yeah, maybe we can do this for socks and, you know, have an impact in our community.
0: Randy, talk about sort of your lead up to starting the company. Do
1: you want me to talk about when Dave's chair was hitting mine at the... Uh, yeah, hit? was
0: it? did it constantly disturb you while you were, you know, taking away commas and well, I, you know, adding other things? I was actually
1: a copywriter, so I was writing stories and trying to think oh, of Oh, writing. I apologize. <laughs> uh, the copy editors never liked me as a writer anyway. A lot of <laughs> grammatical errors. But um, yeah, you know, I, I built my career in branding as a strategist and a copywriter, and then went to work at a media company kind of on the editorial side and building sort of an ad agency within the company as well. Uh, So Dave and I just were fast friends, you know. I mean, we both had a passion for entrepreneurship. I grew up in an entrepreneurial family, so did Dave. Uh, You know, we had businesses when we were kids. Like, you know, the idea of doing something together was appealing, but we weren't just going to leap at an idea. And interestingly enough, when Dave came across the kind of quote that changed everything for us, our first instinct was, how do we help solve this problem? And then eventually, a couple of days later, we came to maybe there's a business idea here, a business solution. And I think we pretty quickly realized there was an amazing fit uh, for the business model and the marketplace, and that there was an opportunity because socks hadn't really changed in 50 years, it felt like. And, you know, even people who were can, very thoughtful about what they put on their body didn't care too much about socks. And we came to find out that even companies that were making socks didn't care about socks. So that was our opportunity.
0: This type of interview I always find kind of difficult because I feel like we could talk for hours about things that happened 10 years ago, and I don't want to do that. I wanted to ask th- this specific question, which is what you guys have been very exceptional in doing, is there are a lot of brands out there that are just products, and they have a hero product, and it doesn't really go beyond that. But I feel like you you have been able to build a brand over the last many years that people think of as socks, but you also have other products, but it's been able to grow with that what what was it specifically the moment when you were that that was when there were the rise of these other DTC brands and you had a model that resonated with people like what specifically made it work so that you weren't just a company that made socks but were bombus either of you can take that
2: yeah I, i'll start and and i think Randy can jump in um you know i think early on right we looked at you know, the the apparel landscape, right? And we said, what are the kind of key dis- differentiators for the brands that were truly successful? And, you know, one of the biggest consistencies, and it may sound obvious, is they all had very established brands. And from day one, as part of our kind of go-to-market strategy, we invested heavily in brand. So Randy is a brand strategist, you know, our other One of our other co-founders, Aaron, is a creative director who spent his whole life at you know, creative agencies. And so we, we had that skill and competency in-house from day one. So everything that we did, whether it was launching our Indiegogo campaign to building our website, to our customer interactions, to our emails, to everything, even though we were small and didn't have very many resources, we, we made sure we looked at everything through a very consistent brand lens. And I think over the years, you know, that kind of level of consistency and repetition, but also evolution. You know, you can't act the same way as a at a million dollar company as you do a hundred million dollar company. You know, you're talking to a bigger customer base and all these different things. We've always invested, and I don't just mean resources, but kind of like time, energy, thought into brand. I think Randy, you can speak a little bit to like kind of the timing and you know, the, how we, you know, came about during kind of the rise of Facebook and some of those other things and developing that other side as a core competency.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, listen, you know, as a brand guy, I love hearing when other people say, Hey, we built this business around brand, but this is Dave's, this has been his big idea, I guess, from the beginning. And as our CEO, you know, I think it would be beneficial to a lot of companies to have a CEO that's invested in the idea of brand. For us, we've had two consistent things since the beginning, right? The, a commitment to our community, right? Giving back in a meaningful and personal way, and then showing our customers that work. And then also quali- a high quality product, the idea of comfort. Comfort and communities have been the pillars of our brand since the beginning. And the way we talk about those things and the stories we tell and even the products we make have shifted a little bit. Like Dave said, you grow into being a bigger company. The demands from your customers change. You have to show them different things. The way into the story changes. But on some level, you have to be so consistent in that messaging. And if you're going to break through in today's world, you're going to get noticed. You know, It's a a wildly different media landscape now than it was even 10 years ago even five years ago, and I'm sure you see this all the time and this comes up all the time, but the mark, the world of marketing has changed, the world of how you put yourself out into the world as a company has changed, where you meet your customers has changed, and you have to adopt that while also staying consistent and true to yourself. These are the things that we think about all the time.
0: Have you been relatively insulated? I don't know if "insulated" is the right word, but from the woes of Facebook specifically, given that you, you've become more established, like you were very lucky in the time when you have, because you could do quick and cheap customer acquisition. And now it's a very different landscape, as you said. So how how have you been able to ride that, or has it just the the brand history been there?
1: Well, we did come up in a time where you know it's interesting. The time where we launched in 2013 you know the technology to launch an e-commerce business had become basically free and the marketing had gotten more expensive but not so prohibitively expensive as it is now for some companies no one even thinks about the technology anymore right like that was the main driver of cost if you launched an e-commerce business in 2006 2008, the technology was prohibitively expensive but the there was no algorithm everything that you put out on facebook all of your followers saw right it was just a free ride so if you could afford to get out there you could build a big business and then that obviously shifted the other way and now the marketing is almost prohibitively expensive and the technology is free we happened to be in that sweet spot where we could put up a website people were still buying things online even though it was newer at the time 10 years ago um And we got really good at marketing on Facebook. And Facebook has been a great partner for us through the years. But the demographic has changed. The way it works has changed. So we've had to expand and we've had to diversify and we've had to go meet people where they are. I think that's the hallmark of really good modern brands is you're going to find people where they are in their world and you're attaching yourself to their life and not asking them to come into your world, right? You're just – You have to grind it out a little bit, and you have to find success in multiple different places, and you do have to insulate yourself from the woes of Facebook, as you said, but also maybe you can use that to your advantage, and you can be great there when everybody else is ignoring it. Or maybe you can be great at email, which gets ignored sometimes and feels a little bit old school, but is an incredible way to – you know continue to bring life to your customer base. So you have to think a little bit outside the box, but most of all, you have to have a good story to tell and a really clear angle, and you have to be consistent in telling it.
2: And I think that because this is a kind of a more industry focused, you know, podcast, you know, for, for kind of, Examples in context. When we launched, we were, you know, we had three, four, five dollar CPAs pretty consistently for the first few years. And so you could spend very little. <laughs> yeah,
0: those were the days.
2: And acquire customers, you know, at a, at a very high volume. So you, the amount of budget you needed was very low in order to kind of discover and kind of find the customer base. And then by the time we had kind of grown up, as Randy was talking about, we, you know, Facebook's still a big partner of ours, but we had diversified away from as an overall media mix, you know, where Facebook's now kind of like 20% of our overall spend. And, you know, we spend on TV, we spend on Google, we spend on all of these other, you know, audio podcasts, these types of channels. Whereas when I talked to other e-commerce brands over the last few years that were just getting started, they were like 90% Facebook because, you know, that's kind of, you know, where you go to cut your teeth. And, you know, but they were seeing, you know, $80, $90, $100, $200 $80, 90 $100, $200 CPAs out of the gate, which means that they just needed a lot more budget in order to kind of get that momentum. And we had kind of already like had escape velocity at that point where this had become such a core competency to how we run the business that when iOS 14 updates and all those other kind of privacy things happened. We had amassed such amount of data on our own side, and our tools that we had built internally had gotten so sophisticated that we were able to kind of fly the plane, even though we were missing that one piece of instrumentation that, you know, the Facebook algorithm, we had enough data that we could kind of still directionally point, you know, the plane in the right direction.
0: Did you see any fallout at all from iOS 14 out of curiosity?
2: I mean, kind of... an immediate fallout, sure, like for a first first couple months, because again the algorithm changed very very rapidly. Um, but we then started to you know reposition some of the instrumentation and tools that we have to fill in that data gap, and all of a sudden you know we we were very quickly back up. I think I think iOS was kind of like a June July thing, or maybe it was like an August thing. By holiday that year, like our own internal you know what they call like a multi-touch attribution model um, was was primed and, and working so well that we were able to start capitalizing on, you know, increasing our spend back on that platform.
0: Oh, that's great. Good results. That's great. I wanted to ask just in terms of, you know, zooming out, looking at the overall business over the last decade, I feel like companies have certain like eras where the, you know, very early startup, then they get to sort of growth mode and then they sort of hit the established area. What would you say, like, were those milestones like strategically in terms of what you did as a company? Was it when you expanded into t-shirts that you were like, you know, now we're, we're more than what we were five years ago? Or what do you think of as the certain chapters or eras of bombus
2: It felt like, I don't know if any of you agree, but it felt like maybe the first five years, you know, it was, it was, Kind of, we were like zero to a hundred million dollars in revenue in the first five years, and that was like pretty consistent, like triple digit year over year growth, right? Like very, you know, it's like 300 percent, two hundred percent, one hundred percent, and then once we hit a hundred million, it started. It it was like fifty percent year over year. Like the dollars are are much larger at that at that number, um, but we started to see the overall growth rate decline, even though the dollars were bigger. Um, And then it started getting a little bit more into rather than just like drinking from the fire hose from a marketing perspective, I think around 100 million, the team size started getting to be like 125 people. Um, It started to feel like a organization rather than just like 50 people in a room trying to like put fires out and be super scrappy and agile. And Around that time, I think we started to implement process and, you know, some of the, you know, big, scary corporate words that I think a lot of founders, you know, shy away from. But we always say, like, if if a process is done correctly, like, it kind of works in the background and it doesn't feel like process. Um, and for me, that's kind of when we started to feel like we were graduating from, like, true startup to maybe, like, you know, early adolescence, you know, small mid-sized company. Uh, and then I'd say probably around like 250 million of revenue was probably the next milestone where you started feeling like, okay, we're now like a small mid-cap company um, and, you know, a lot more systems and reliance on data and information to make decisions rather than kind of like the early days intuition, put your finger in the wind. And, you know, you know there's still some of that. Like, you know, and that's kind of an interesting period where we're at. It's like the the tension between good intuition and kind of what the data tells you. And, you know, if you just fly everything by the data, you know, you you, you would just sell black socks all day long. Um, you wouldn't have any, you know, interesting, you know, innovation or whatever. Um, but it, it also runs a lot more smoothly today, uh, you know, than it did in those early years. Less kind of like big, crazy, you know, chaotic problems to solve. It's much more predictable and you're doing everything kind of on the margin rather than trying to take big swings.
0: Randy, anything to add?
1: It's interesting. I do think of milestones the way that Dave you know, describe them. I think that's really interesting. Look at it. But there's there's a few other different views, right? There's also we keep track of um, the, the number of items we've donated over the years. And we thought it would take us ten years to donate a million pairs of socks and we did that in two and a half years. Um Dave got a tattoo to celebrate that one. We made a video about it. But you know, every time we would hit like five million items donated, ten million, the numbers started to get really big. And we use those moments to take a step back, take a look in the mirror, make sure we knew who we were, that we were staying true to ourselves as a company, that to our principles, to our customers, and making sure our customers understood that they were really powering an engine of good and and the infrastructure of giving that we built that, that got really real over the last few years is because of our amazing customers. so we use those numbers as milestones, and this past. Year This year, we hit 100 million items donated, and we use that as an opportunity to do a campaign and talk to some people who have experienced homelessness and talk to our customers about some of the myths around homelessness. So that's been another way throughout the years that we've sort of measured growth and milestones um, outside of, like, team size. And I think the other one that you mentioned, you, know, so you said, oh, when you launched T-shirts, I think that's been a big Idea as well. You know, we always feel that we have to earn the right to expand beyond the categories that we're focused on. So, when it was socks, before we launched t-shirts and underwear, we we felt like we had to ha- really establish socks business. And before and now, we sell t-shirts, underwear, socks, and slippers. And. Before we we're going to expand beyond that, we feel like we have to earn the right. And we don't feel like we've earned that right yet. We have high standards for ourselves, for our business, for what it means for penetration within the marketplace. But so I think about the product roadmap. I think about the giving milestones and I think about the team and the way that Dave set it up. And, you know, there's lots of different ways to judge growth and success as a company.
0: I wanted to ask because you mentioned the the buy one give one the hundred million milestone. This is a question I always try to ask companies that have uh, sort of a mission based uh, ethos behind it, which is you know how how have you found like do do you view this as much marketing as it is just a part of what you do? Does it resonate with consumers? Especially now when I talk with, and this isn't the same as your company, but like sustainability is something that a lot of companies talk about and they put that in their marketing. But then they also say that like talking about the fact that they don't pollute or they have a better supply chain doesn't actually resonate with customers. And I find that those sort of social focuses is a difficult tightrope to walk. So how have you found, like in terms of the storytelling that you do, how does that manifest in terms of the actual business?
1: It's a, intrinsic to who we are as a company, right? You you could not remove our mission from Bombas, and it would still be Bombas. It's just impossible. It's built into our bylaws, to our core values, to how we operate. And we've really built this company so that if you took out the mission, we'd just be a, a company. And I don't think people would really care as much. And if you took out the products and we were just a charitable organization, we would not have the same impact. So both sides of it really need each other, and we we spend a lot of effort to over-communicate around the mission to our customers. And sure, we look at open rates for an email about mission versus product and things like that, but overall, you have to have conviction around these things. So, you know, If your company is built around sustainability, and you're not talking about sustainability till you're blue in the face, you're not talking about it enough, right? Even if you don't see the same response from customers, they process when when a company is is true to something or is really acting on it versus just using it for marketing. So we have to market around our mission. It's super important to tell those stories and to get the word out there and to remind our customers why this company exists. But it's not just marketing. You know, people come to work at this company because they want to give back to so the community. Is where we work and live. You see the the impact that we're having by donating products. And we hear firsthand accounts of that. We've built a network of over 4,000 giving partners across all 50 states. So for us, it is surely like marketing is important to get that message out there, but it's about the core of who we are and communicating that versus just trying to win extra points and conversion.
2: I was speaking with a bunch of you know, college students at Duke recently, and we kind of came up with this, you know, similar topic of, like, sustainability and why, you know, why do they feel like some brands get credit and, you know, where others don't from a mission standpoint. And they, it was interesting to hear, especially, you know, Gen Zers, who are obviously very passionate about climate change and all these other things. They said, with brands who talk about sustainability, they're like, it's very hard to quantify. They're like, by 2029, we're going to have zero carbon in our, and they're like, uh, okay, like, uh, how do I act on like, fine, I'll buy what like to have an impact on that. Whereas I think the feedback we got about Bombus's mission is they're like, it's super quantifiable, right? I buy one, I know someone today, who's experiencing, you know, homelessness, or as at risk of homelessness is going to get a similar item of clothing. And that's a very, very tangible concept for them. I think, even within the buy one, give one, where we get, I think, a tremendous amount of credit, and a lot of it is due to the fact that we talk about it a lot, is we're donating locally. Like, we're donating here in the United States. And so when, as Randy mentioned, we have this network of 4,000 giving partners, when someone purchases in Juneau, Alaska, like, we can serve up, you know, an email to them that says, Here's the giving partner within a 50-mile radius of where you live that is receiving donation product from Bombus. That closes the loop for a customer in a way that I think even the brands that donated to third-world countries couldn't really do because I think all of us, regardless of where you live, have probably come in some contact with people experiencing homelessness or at risk or, you know, poverty in their own community – and the idea of oh that person is going to receive the same product that I'm purchasing, is a very very uh, tangible concept for people.
0: Yeah, I think that quantifiable point is really salient that I never thought of, and that's like the big nut to crack for businesses that talk about other more nebulous things like climate change. Like, how do you actually make it so that they feel like they're doing something other than like maybe having less of an impact? In and you think years.
2: about like one percent for the planet. It sounds great, but like. I'm I'm in the business world and I'm kind of like, I, I don't even, I don't know what the impact is at that point.
0: We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. I wanted to follow up on something you said a few minutes ago, Dave, which is, uh, and I don't know if there's, an, there's probably not an easy answer to this, but you, you said how you've exceeded 250 million, you have a hundred plus staff, you follow data, but then you also do try to follow intuitions when it comes to business decisions. And like, how are you able to, try and sort of codify that because that gets really difficult when you have so many millions of data points and you are such an engine so like what what is the way that you're able to even make it so that someone can be creative and do something
2: i'm smiling because there is there there is no like system or process for it i think i think that's you know some of the magic right in ensuring that you know our chief marketing officer for instance she is like So data minded and like, you know, drives a lot of, you know, decisions through customer insights and all this stuff, which is fantastic, but it's great when you have her in a room with Randy and Aaron who are very like creative and brand focused and say like, I guess I get that's what the data is showing us to do, but like there's, there is a certain degree of intuition Especially from, like, people who are really, really good at kind of the brand marketing side of things, where you just kind of have to, like, trust your instinct, you know, based off of what you see other brands doing or how other brands, you know, have gotten to certain places, like everybody talks about Nike, but like Nike's not putting up a billboard with Colin Kaepernick, you know, being like, oh, that's going to sell a ton of shoes, that specific billboard. We're looking for an ROI on that billboard to deliver 4,000 pairs of shoes because foot traffic, you know, during, you know, this time of year in Times Square yields, they're not thinking of it that way, right? They're thinking of like, this is something that we want to make sure that our customers know that we stand for, you know, and, then, when they get served, you know, an ad, maybe in Google, they they draw on that, like, oh, right, that, like, they, they this is a brand that stands for the same things that I stand for. It makes that you know purchase decision you know easier from a conversion perspective, but that that billboard doesn't get any of that kind of credit for that perspective. So, it's more art than science to kind of balance those two things. Um, and it's something that we, we debate all the time, right? It, it is not a, there's no clear line. You know, it, it it's that good natural tension, I think, that ultimately delivers the best results when you can kind of marry the art with the science. And, you know, you don't always get it 100% right, but you kind of have to rely on the fact that you think like instinctually, we feel like this is the right direction.
0: Mr. Brand, anything to add?
2: <laughs> I think that that's, a hundred percent
1: part of the, the reason that we've had success, especially, you know, as an executive team, as we've grown, you have to have that trust built in that people are going to do some things and take some swings. And then you have to have the culture where accountability, uh, allows people to stand up and take credit for things, or, you know, we can make mistakes and move on and learn from them. If you're, if, if you're not doing these types of things, where occasionally something says the, the numbers say this, but we just have a feeling about this, then you're you're probably not going to get to that next level. I, I think you can only get so far just always going by the book, like Dave said. I mean, we're fully aligned on this point, um, which is not always the case, but we are especially on this point for sure. And I think this is a, it's a great question that we don't hear very often, but I think a big part of running a business, especially a growing business, is – in 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 the modern world is how are you going to reconcile these two ideas?
0: Yeah, I feel like I hear from a lot of companies that call themselves data driven and that it doesn't it doesn't give me immediate pause, but it makes me think like, well, what about that other side that's unquantifiable? And so I always try to get a sense for and you know, there is no clear cut like, well, we have this process that will make it so that they can make this thing. But like it's always good to hear when companies are able to have that sort of je ne sais quoi or, you know, ab- abstract thinking part part of the business.
2: I think there's a reason they're like greatest artists of the world, whether it's musicians, painters, you know, they, they, they go off of, you know, what they feel and how, you know, what kind of comes to them from an inspiration standpoint. They're not going out in the marketplace and being like, what paintings do people like? You know, I'm going to try to like paint the thing that we think <laughs> everybody wants. So that's where creative, you have to fight for creative and give, your creative leaders some liberty to put great things out that they think are great out into the world. And some of the stuff doesn't hit, doesn't resonate. But then every now and then, like you get this thing that, you know, and I could, one of our examples is our gripper slipper, like our you know, our design team saw this like amazing design on one of their inspiration trips, I think in Peru. And they're like, we want to make this design into this like really awesome house thing. And it's like during holiday, I think it represents like 20% of our sales. And and we do a lot of revenue in holiday. And, you know, every single year that product is sold out. Now, I I think if you asked a bunch of customers, like, is this something you want? They'd probably be like, I don't know. Like but we had conviction around it because we all internally just were like, "This looks awesome. This feels great. Let's put it out."
0: I actually own that slipper because my mom gave it to me. So you you clearly got her.
1: <laughs> mom, mom's love Bombas. That's for sure too.
0: <laughs> bombas. Um. So uh, I, you mentioned uh, Randy earlier about the the product expansion when you've expanded into you know t shirts, underwear. Um, I wanted to ask, like. It seems like one of the ethos that that you guys have had has been to sort of stay in your lane and until you like know when you've owned it. You mentioned you weren't going to exit socks until you feel like you had a, a real handle on socks. How, how did you know that you were ready to sort of make that jump into these other products? But then also, did you face resistance? Like, where, did you have investors being like, "You really got, you really got to go do this. You really got to go do that."
1: I don't think we faced a terrible amount of resistance. Fortunately, we have great partners and. Um, you know, they, they see the value in being a multi-category apparel brand. But we did make some mistakes along the way, right? We launched some products that we ended up pulling back out of, and that's sort of how we came to, the, to remind ourselves that we need to focus on the things that we're already doing and win in them, and then at, at some point we're ready. And then it's a combination of what we're hearing from our customers, what we're seeing in the marketplace, what we think we have, the, like the permission to do from both our customers in the marketplace. Like, you know, what do people want from Bombas if, if we really think hard about it? And then the the other piece is uh, the giving side of things. So socks are the most requested clothing item in homeless shelters. Dave mentioned that that was sort of the driving force for starting the business. Underwear is number two and t-shirts are number three. We make socks, tees and underwear, right? So it lines up with our goals in terms of Donating new product items to people who are experiencing homelessness and it also lines up with what our customers are looking for. You know, they say if you're making a pair of socks that change the way I feel about socks. Well, what else can you do for me in terms of things that I wear closest to my body things that I move in the first things that I put on in the morning and the things that I take off before I go to bed. These are the things that have the biggest impact on your everyday comfort and those are the things that we make. So it sounds pretty logical now, but we had to take a few side steps to get there, and we feel pretty pretty good about the types of products that we're making and then going really deep in these categories, and then eventually maybe we'll peek up over the horizon and see something else coming.
0: So should I just Google number four most requested <laughs> items for homeless people to uh, guess what's next? yeah
1: the, I, I think uh, I think the the basics in that realm are the most important, and socks, teas and underwear socks and underwear are the overwhelming. Needs and that's where we're going to focus the majority of our efforts with our donation products. Uh, I think for the history, for for the rest of time for, of Bombas. So even as we launch other products, I, I imagine we will continue to focus our giving efforts on those products. But you never know. We've also donated products from other companies through our network um, in times of need and making sure that we are leveraging this for the maximum good.
2: Anything to add, Dave? Yeah, I, I think you know we haven't really thought about a product beyond, you know, the categories that we're in um, because we feel like we've got a tremendous amount of runway. I mean, you think about, you know, there's a number of huge brands doing multi-billion dollars a year in revenue, you know, at much lower price points than we are that were built only on socks, tees, and underwear, right? And from a donation side, the reason that these three, you know, and, and as Randy said, socks and underwear overwhelmingly, is these are the three items that we all wear closest to our bodies every day. You know, and so if you're experiencing homelessness, you don't have access to a washing machine. You know, these things are wear through items. They're wear through items for us, but the the rate at which they go through them um, is much faster. Um, And so that's why I think there's a pretty steep decline. You know, off of after t-shirts in terms of the, you know, because a pair of pants and jackets and those shoes they last a long time, even if you are you know hard on them. but like underwear, I mean, all of us, I think, are probably replacing those items at least once a year, maybe every once every two years, just due to normal wear and tear. And if you only have one or two pairs at a time, you're going through them much, much faster.
0: We're almost coming out of time. I have a million more questions to ask, so I'll, I only have a few more that I think we can fit into this. But uh, I want to talk just about other areas of expansion. I feel like you've been very intentional in that, too. So. You had a, a few, you've had, you worked with a few wholesalers, right? Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's been Nordstrom. Was it Dick Sporting Goods?
2: Nordstrom's Dick Sporting Goods, a really great retailer out of the Midwest called Shields. Um, we were in athletic for a period of time before they kind of changed some of their strategy. Um, Selective Partners
0: what is the overall thought process behind that, especially? And like, I'll I'll add another layer. Like, I know that I think it was last year, the year before you expanded into the UK. When you do these specific expansions, how do you go about them? Should we expect to see them ramped up? Or, or will they be at the same pace going forward?
2: Yeah, we launched wholesale about five years ago, um, mostly because we were getting a tremendous uh, amount of inbound demand, you know, bunch of retailers saying, hey, we've seen your growth. You're a big company. We'd like to carry your product. We were maniacally focused on being an e-commerce brand. And again, we were still growing at 100% year over year at that point. So we were not like looking for growth. But I think we also weren't so naive to think that maybe at some point the online market might slow down a little bit and we might kind of tap out or the growth rate might get to a point where we might want to have other channels. And at that point, spinning up a brand new business, when it might already be too late, so we were like, "Let's dip our toe in. Let's figure out this whole." It's a very different business. You got EDI, the products you ship, like the the way you treat those customers is very differently. So for people who are thinking like, "I'll just do it all," like it's very, very hard to do both well. Um, tremendous amounts of resources and teams, time, people get you know pulled into different things. Um, so we did it very, very slowly. Um, we launched with kind of one account, and then the next year we added another. And then, you know, for mostly for the last five years, we've been operating with kind of like five big accounts, you know, just trying to like make them really great. And now we feel like we've, you know, had enough skill set internally, enough experience where we're starting to kind of, you know, go to that next tranche uh, of retailer. And there, reason we do why why we feel com- confidence to continue to push there is we do believe we're at now a size and scale around 350 million of revenue where brand awareness is actually starting to help us in retail um you know consumers that are going into retail stores it's not like they're hearing about Bombas for the first time they've seen our ads they might have seen us on Shark Tank they're you know see our TV commercials and so we significantly outperform in our categories in pretty much every retail door that we're in, Um, you know, largely because we have this huge marketing engine that's driving this big e-commerce business. And naturally that kind of spillover happens, you know, on the, on the wholesale side of things as well. And we do think, you know, I think there's some data point out there that says like 85% of, you know, our category is still purchased, you know, at retail. So we're also trying to meet the consumer, you know, where they are while also trying to keep up with shifting consumer trends and, you know, moving more online. And so we kind of want to be in both places, um, at the same time, as long as we can do it well. Um, and that's kind of the big caveat with that. And it's why you're not going to see us kind of blow out and be everywhere all at once, you know, uh, immediately, we're going to take a very slow and kind of methodical approach. And, kind of caveats how we just think about the business as a whole. And, you know, we talked about the UK, you know, we had launched the UK, the market was really good at the time, and then the world changed and economies got really challenged. And within six months of launching the UK, we actually decided to pull it back Oh, really? Okay. because, you know, we were like, you want to launch in the best environment possible and things were challenged here in the US and they were even more challenged in the UK given their proximity to you know the war and all the other big economic things that you know pressures they were facing and we weren't getting a good read on the data over there in terms of penetration and we're just like look you know you want to launch in a good market not in a challenged market um otherwise you're going to be you know just running uphill the whole time so we pulled that back and we've kind of diverted more of our energy into the U.S. only and then expanding, continuing to expand our wholesale channels. But we want to do everything very methodically. And I think this is a trend you've picked up on. You know, We were never the brand that was like, let's go out and raise $150 million and try to be the biggest company as quickly as possible. We look at the brands that we admire, the Nikes, the Lulus, the Under Armour's, Patagonias of the world. These brands have all been around for 20, 30, 40 years, and they've built – You know, brick by brick, you know, every single year, you know, and they never aspired to be the fastest, biggest company as quickly as possible, which I think a lot of the D2C brands over the last decade that have come and mostly have gone um, kind of approached it with that approach. And that's, I don't think, and Randy agrees, that's like, it's not how you build good long-term brand and company value. You've got to earn the trust with the consumer by being very consistent And consistency is something that I think we're very, very focused on, you know, as we think about every new strategy that we deploy.
0: Randy, anything to add?
1: No, I think that's that that nails it. Great job, Dave. I'm I'm on board. (laughs) I'm on board with the strategy.
0: One more uh, question before I let you go. Actually, one follow up. Maybe I'm reading in between the lines, but it sounds like we should expect to hear probably a big box partnership soon.
1: No, no, no. Okay. good read. I like it. I like the digging, putting <laughs> us on the spot, but no, I would not, I would not necessarily say, say that. You know, okay. our, we pick our partners based on are they committed to the mission? Do they want to be involved there? And do they have customers that really trust them? And can we go meet some people who we don't know that have the trust of this place? I mean, it's a pretty simple formula and who are executing well. And, um, maybe, maybe down the road. I mean, listen, we'll take it back to the steering committee. How about that?
0: All right. Sounds good. If you want, yeah, you can quote me on that. All right. So what are you guys thinking about for the year to come? It sounds like, you know, looking into some more wholesale partners, you mentioned anything else we should expect to hear or any other things you're focusing on. And given just the week where we are, I have to know, what are your thoughts on how Q4 is going to go with Black Friday, Cyber Monday? For listeners, this will come out later, but this is literally three days after Cyber Monday. So I'm always interested to see just what you guys are seeing in terms of demand, because it's been so up and down from ev- from every player.
2: I think to answer your first question, you know, we've got some interesting ideas and products coming out in the categories that we're in. We're always trying to Innovate in the in the categories that we're in, whether it's socks, underwear, tees, slippers. Um, so I think you know certainly some cool things that I think we think are cool coming out next year. Not going to be earth shattering, you know. We're not making you know bed linens or anything. Um, this is you know it, it's some it's products I think you would expect to see from a brand like Bombas, um, but you know certainly feel new enough that uh, you know it, it's not just another colorway of a, of a sock we already produce. Um, and then Black Friday, you know, it's it's been interesting. Um, you know, there's definitely, I think, and we talked to a lot of our, our peer brands, there's volatility still in the market. The consumer, you know, is, is I think, a little all over the place. Um, definitely being, at least from what we're seeing and hearing, definitely very promotional-driven this year. Um, I think consumers want value. I, I think, this is, we've been talking about a recession for the last three years. Like from our standpoint, this is the first year where it feels like it's actually hit the wallets of the consumer. Um, We're still seeing good year-over-year comps. You know, we're kind of happy with where we're at. But, you know, we talked to some brands that are down 20% year-over-year. And then certainly there's always the exceptions to the rule, the brands that are very hot right now that are up 20% year-over-year. I think we're comfortably definitely more on the growth side um, than the negative comp side. Um, But, you know, Black Friday, Cyber Monday, you're, you're really only halfway through. So... Who knows? You know, there's been talk that consumers are shifting more of their spends to later in the season, hoping for better deals, or maybe they're being last minute shoppers. Um, but we'll see.
0: Randy, any other thoughts?
2: Yeah, talk to us in you know 32 days in January. We'll
1: we'll, t- <laughs> we'll we'll let you know. Um, Give you an update uh, on how things are are going. I mean, it's a big part of our year. We're excited about you know the idea of Bombus as a gift. Always people. You got Bombas from your mom, you said, right?
0: I get them every year. Yeah,
1: you get them every year. Sure. I think people like the idea of a gift that actually truly gives back in a meaningful way and is easy to give somebody because the sizes are relatively easy. and' it's something comfortable and it's low risk. So this is a, a big moment for us and, you know, all those moms out there. It's Bombas time.
0: Well, Dave, Randy, this has been a great conversation. Appreciate you guys joining the show.
1: Thank you so Thanks much God, for having man.
0: us. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and send this podcast over to a friend who you know would enjoy it. See you next week.